Section 15 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 1 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 7 The Queen's Marriage, Part 1. On January 16, 1840, the Queen, opening Parliament in person, announced her intention to marry her cousin, Prince Albert of Saxe Coburg Gotha a step which she trusted would be conducive to the interests of my people as well as to my own domestic happiness in the discussion which followed in the house of commons sir robert peel observed that her majesty had the singular good fortune to be able to gratify her private feelings while she performs her public duty and to obtain the best guarantee for happiness by contracting an alliance founded on affection peel spoke the simple truth it was indeed a marriage founded on affection no marriage contracted in the humblest class could have been more entirely a union of love and more free from what might be called selfish and worldly considerations the queen had for a long time loved her cousin he was nearly her own age the queen being the elder by three months and two or three days francis charles augustus albert emmanuel was the full name of the young prince he was the second son of Ernest, Duke of Saxe Coburg Saalfeld, and of his wife Louisa, daughter of Augustus, Duke of Saxe Gotha Altenberg. Prince Albert was born at the Rosenau, one of his father's residences near Coburg, on August twenty sixth, eighteen nineteen. The court historian notices with pardonable complacency the remarkable coincidence, easily explained surely that the same accoucheuse madame Siebold, assisted at the birth of prince albert and of the queen some three months before and that the prince was baptized by the clergyman professor gensler who had the year before officiated at the marriage of the duke and duchess of kent a marriage between the princess victoria and prince albert had been thought of as desirable among the families on both sides but it was always wisely resolved that nothing should be said to the young princess on the subject unless she herself showed a distinct liking for her cousin in eighteen thirty six prince albert was brought by his father to england and made the personal acquaintance of the princess and she seems at once to have been drawn toward him in the manner which her family and friends would most have desired three years later the prince again came to england and the queen in a letter to her uncle the king of the belgians wrote of him in the warmest terms albert's beauty she said is most striking and he is most amiable and unaffected in short very fascinating not many days after she wrote to another friend and faithful counsellor the baron stockmar to say i do feel so guilty i know not how to begin my letter but i think the news it will contain will be sufficient to ensure your forgiveness albert has completely won my heart and all was settled between us this morning the queen had just before informed lord melbourne of her intention and lord melbourne it is needless to say expressed his decided approval there was no one to disapprove of such a marriage prince albert was a young man to win the heart of any girl he was singularly handsome graceful and gifted in princes as we know a small measure of beauty and accomplishment suffices to throw courtiers and court ladies into transports of admiration 
but had prince albert been the son of a farmer or a butler he must have been admired for his singular personal attractions he had had a sound and varied education he had been brought up as if he were to be a professional musician a professional chemist or botanist and a professor of history and belles-lettres and the fine arts the scientific and the literary were remarkably blended in his bringing up remarkably that is to say for some half-century ago when even in germany a system of education seldom aimed at being totus teres atque rotundus he had begun to study the constitutional history of states and was preparing himself to take an interest in politics there was much of the practical and business-like about him as he showed in after life he loved farming and took a deep interest in machinery and in the growth of industrial science he was a sort of combination of the troubadour the savant and the man of business his tastes were for a quiet domestic and unostentatious life a life of refined culture of happy calm evenings of art and poetry and genial communion with nature he was made happy by the songs of birds and delighted in sitting alone and playing the organ but there was in him too a great deal of the political philosopher he loved to hear political and other questions well argued out and once observed that a false argument jarred on his nerves as much as a false note in music he seems to have had from his youth an all-pervading sense of duty so far as we can guess he was almost absolutely free from the ordinary follies not to say sins of youth young as he was when he married the queen he devoted himself at once to what he conscientiously believed to be the duties of his station with a self-control and a self-devotion rare even among the aged and almost unknown in youth he gave up every habit however familiar and dear every predilection no matter how sweet every indulgence of sentiment or amusement that in any way threatened to interfere with the steadfast performance of the party it assigned to himself no man ever devoted himself more faithfully to the difficult duties of a high and new situation or kept more strictly to his resolve it was no task to him to be a tender husband and a loving father this was a part of his sweet pure and affectionate nature it may well be doubted whether any other queen ever had a married life so happy as that of queen victoria the marriage of the queen and the prince took place on february tenth eighteen forty the reception given by the people in general to the prince on his landing in england a few days before the ceremony and on the day of the marriage was cordial and even enthusiastic but it is not certain whether there was a very cordial feeling to the prince among all classes of politicians a rumour of the most absurd kind had got abroad in certain circles that the young albert was not a protestant that he was in fact a member of the church of rome in a different circle the belief was curiously cherished that the prince was a free thinker in matters of religion and a radical in politics somewhat unfortunately the declaration of the intended marriage to the privy council did not mention the fact that albert was a protestant prince the cabinet no doubt thought that the leaders of public opinion on all sides of politics would have had historical knowledge among them to teach them that prince albert belonged to that branch of the saxon family 
which since the reformation had been conspicuously protestant there has not prince albert himself wrote to the queen on december seventh eighteen thirty nine been a single catholic princess introduced into the coburg family since the appearance of luther in fifteen twenty one moreover the elector frederick the wise of saxony was the very first protestant that ever lived no doubt the ministry thought also that the constitutional rule which forbids an english sovereign to marry with a roman catholic under penalty of forfeiting the crown would be regarded as a sufficient guarantee that when they announced the queen's approaching marriage it must be a marriage with a protestant all this assumption however reasonable and natural did not find warrant in the events that actually took place it would have been better of course if the government had assumed that parliament and the public generally knew nothing about the prince and his ancestry or the constitutional penalties for a member of the royal family marrying a catholic and had formally announced that the choice of queen victoria had happily fallen on a protestant the wise and foreseeing leopold king of the belgians had recommended that the fact should be specifically mentioned but it was perhaps a part of lord melbourne's indolent good nature to take it for granted that people generally would be calm and reasonable and that all would go right without interruption or cavil he therefore acted on the assumption that any formal mention of prince albert's protestantism would be superfluous and neither in the declaration to the privy council nor in the announcement to parliament was a word said upon the subject the result was that in the debate on the address in the house of lords a somewhat unseemly altercation took place an altercation the more to be regretted because it might have been so easily spared the question was bluntly raised by no less a person than the duke of wellington whether the future husband of the queen was or was not a protestant the duke actually charged the ministry with having purposely left out the word protestant in the announcements in order that they might not offend their irish and catholic supporters and by the very charge did much to strengthen the popular feeling against the statesmen who were supposed to be kept in office by virtue of the patronage of o'connell the duke moved that the word protestant be inserted into the congratulatory address to the queen and he carried his point although lord melbourne held to the opinion that the word was unnecessary in describing a prince who was not only protestant but descended from the most protestant family in europe the lack of judgment and tact on the part of the ministry was never more clearly shown than in the original omission of the word another disagreeable occurrence was the discussion that took place when the bill for the naturalization of the prince was brought before the house of lords the bill in its title merely set out the proposal to provide for the naturalization of the prince but it contained a clause to give him precedence for life next after her majesty in parliament or elsewhere as her majesty might think proper a great deal of objection was raised by the duke of wellington and lord brougham to this clause on its own merits but as was natural the objections were infinitely aggravated by the singular want of judgment and even of common propriety which could introduce a clause conferring on the sovereign powers so large and so new into a mere naturalization bill without any previous notice to parliament 
the matter was ultimately settled by allowing the bill to remain a simple naturalization procedure and leaving the question of precedence to be dealt with by royal prerogative both the great political parties concurred without further difficulty in an arrangement by which it was provided in letters patent that the prince should thenceforth upon all occasions and in all meetings except when otherwise provided by act of parliament have precedence next to the queen there never would have been any difficulty in the matter if the ministry had acted with any discretion but it would be absurd to expect that a great nation whose constitutional system is built up of precedence should agree at once and without demur to every new arrangement which it might seem convenient to a ministry to make in a hurry yet another source of dissatisfaction to the palace and the people was created by the manner in which the ministry took upon themselves to bring forward the proposition for the settlement of an annuity on the prince in former cases that for example of queen charlotte queen adelaide and prince leopold on his marriage with the princess charlotte the annuity granted had been fifty thousand pounds it so happened however that the settlement to be made on prince albert came in times of great industrial and commercial distress the days had gone by when economy in the house of commons was looked upon as an ignoble principle and when loyalty to the sovereign was believed to bind members of parliament to grant without a murmur of discussion any sums that might be asked by the minister in the sovereign's name parliament was beginning to feel more thoroughly its responsibility as the guardian of the nation's resources and it was no longer thought a fine thing to give away the money of the taxpayer with magnanimous indifference it was therefore absurd on the part of the ministry to suppose that because great sums of money had been voted without question on former occasions they would be voted without question now it is quite possible that the whole matter might have been settled without controversy if the ministry had shown any judgment whatever in their conduct of the business in our day the ministry would at once have consulted the leaders of the opposition in all matters where the grant of money to any one connected with the sovereign is concerned it is now understood that the gift shall come with the full concurrence of both parties in parliament the leader of the house of commons would probably by arrangement propose the grant and the leader of the opposition would second it in the case of the annuity to prince albert the ministry had the almost incredible folly to bring forward their proposal without having invited in any way the concurrence of the opposition they introduced the proposal without discretion they conducted the discussion on it without temper they answered the most reasonable objections with imputations of want of loyalty and they gave some excuse for the suspicion that they wished to provoke the opposition into some expression that might make them odious to the queen and the prince mr hume the economist proposed that the annuity be reduced from fifty thousand pounds to twenty one thousand pounds this was negatived thereupon colonel sidthorpe a once famous tory fanatic of the most eccentric manners and opinions proposed that the sum be thirty thousand pounds and he received the support of sir robert peel and other eminent members of the opposition and the amendment was carried End of section fifteen